0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum in Key West.
1: They bought this home in 1931 for $8,000 in back taxes and still today it's the single largest residential piece of property on this island.
2: We'll discuss the short-lived tongue oil industry in Florida. It wasn't until 1905 that a famous Floridian by the name of David Fairchild, a botanist who lived down in South Florida, brought over some of these tongue tree seeds to begin experimenting with cultivation here in the United States.
0: And we'll talk about the history of surfing in the Sunshine State. All that ahead on Florida
3: Frontiers. Sometimes I look at old pictures smile at how happy we were How easy it was to be hungry It wasn't for fame or for money It was for love Now my copper hair is grey As the stones on the quay In the city where my
0: The Mary Chapin Carpenter song, Mrs. Hemingway, is about Ernest Hemingway's first wife, Hadley Richardson. Hemingway divorced her in 1927 while the couple was living in Paris. Writer John Dos Passos suggested to Hemingway that he may enjoy Key West, Florida, and in March 1928, Hemingway visited the island for the first time. Dave Gonzalez is events director at the Hemingway House and
1: Museum. He came here for two reasons, really. One was to fish and enjoy himself, and the other was to take delivery of a uh, 1928 Model A Ford Roadster. Now, his plan was to jump in that car and drive it back to um, Oak Park, Illinois, the Chicago area, and write a little novel or novella about the road trip. Well, he arrived here in March, and the car was not here. So it was delayed um, from production, and he ended up spending um, three additional weeks here he hadn't planned on, and at that time, he then fell in love with Key West, the lifestyle, the fishing, of course. The car eventually arrived. He eventually went upon his way. But uh, he kept coming back to Key West over the next two years, mostly during the spring months. He'd invite his friends uh, from the lost generation. Uh, John Dos Passos came down, Waldo Pierce, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And they come down for fishing trips in the spring mostly. But Hemingway would spend four to six months out of the next two years here.
0: When Hemingway's second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer, found the home that the couple would move into, it was boarded up and abandoned, but she could see its potential. The property was on the highest point in Key West, across the street from the island's lighthouse.
1: They bought this home in 1931 for $8,000 in back taxes, and still today it's the single largest residential piece of property on this island. We're a full acre, very lush tropical gardens. Uh, The mansion was originally built in 1851 by Asa Tift, a wealthy uh, shipwreck and salvaging merchant.
0: Ernest Hemingway lived in the home until 1939. He was very productive while in Key West. As early as his first visit in 1928, the writer put the finishing touches on his book, A Farewell to Arms. While living in the home that is now the Hemingway Museum, the author wrote the novel To Have and Have Not, the nonfiction book Green Hills of Africa, and short stories The Snows of Kilimanjaro and
1: The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. Dave Gonzalez. This was his first writing studio, the secondary building in the rear of the main mansion. Uh, prior to this time, he wrote on tabletops, bar countertops, kitchen tops, coffee tables, where we could find a smooth surface to write. They took what was the carriage house, and the upper floor was the hayloft, and converted that upper floor into his formal writing studio. Uh, Hemingway is very much a trendsetter, and he's probably the developer of something we call home office and teleworking back in the 1930s. There were no roads connecting the last 35 miles of Key West to the mainland. So to visit Hemingway, you had to come by either boat or airplane. There was a ferry. Uh, and I kind of like that. If you understand a true writer, when they go into their writing mode, they go into an isolation period. And he certainly isolated himself from the mainland U.S. by positioning himself here in Key West, disconnected uh, and by, by roadways uh, from the mainland uh, United States.
0: The Ernest Hemingway House and Museum property is famous for its population of polydactyl or six-toed cats. The cats at the museum today are living history in a sense, as they are direct descendants of Hemingway's own cats.
1: There's a folklore legend about them, and you have to understand Hemingway. He was very much a storyteller as a boy that later grew up into a story writer as a man. And um, when he heard the folklore legend about the uh, six-toed cats, they were the preferred cats on the wooden clipper ships. Uh, Ship's captains took them on board mainly because they thought that extra digit, the six toes, made them better mousers, which catch the rodents on the ships. But they also were believed to have mystical and magical powers. They were believed to give ships captains calm seas, prevailing winds, and safe passages on their journeys. Therefore, they were the preferred cats on clipper ships. When Hemingway heard this folklore legend about the six-toed cats, and they were called gypsy cats as well, he thought, that's a great story. I'd like to have one of those cats. There's a gentleman, his name was Stanley Dexter. He was a ship's captain here uh, in Key West. And uh, Hemingway had docked his boat, the Pilar, down at the the Key West Harbor where Dexter was working. And Dexter heard about Hemingway's interest in these six-toed cats and gave Hemingway the first six-toed cat. It was a white, totally white cat. And the the mother of the cat was named uh, Snowball. So Hemingway's sons, Patrick and Gregory, uh, they named it Snowball Jr., even though it was a female. It retained a junior. Um, And that was the first polydactyl cat on the property, a six-toed cat. There's a picture of of Gregory holding the white cat in our dining room, uh, standing alongside Patrick. And uh, as we say, that was the start of the six-toed cat clan that we have here. Hemingway being a little bit of a humorist as well, he named all of his cats after famous people. So we still follow that same tradition today. And, again, with the app, or if you visit our cat cemetery, you'll see names like uh, Carrie Grant, Liz Taylor, uh, Gertrude Stein, uh, again, the list just goes on and on, Lionel Barrymore, Benny Goodman.
0: About 50 cats lived on the property while Hemingway lived there, and the same number is maintained at the museum today. People from around the world visit the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum, and tours are available in nine languages. In addition to the six-toed cats, visitors get to see Hemingway family photographs, original furniture and artifacts including the writer's 1932 royal portable typewriter. Also on the property is the swimming pool installed by the second Mrs. Hemingway.
1: It was the largest residential pool in all South Florida when first installed. It's 24 feet wide and 60 feet long. Uh, It's about 10 feet deep at the far end, four foot up on the shallow end. Built in 1937, while Hemingway was off covering the Spanish Civil War, Pauline decides we need a pool. She removed his boxing ring, he was very unhappy about that, located that over to the Blue Heaven restaurant we know today, and put the pool in. The problem was in 1937 we weren't going to get fresh running water in Key West until 1944. So it was a saltwater pool. Now Hemingway was very upset about the pool for, well, two reasons. One, he found out the price tag, $20,000 for the pool. They only paid 8000 for the entire estate. He took a penny from his pocket and told Pauline, you know, if you're going to spend our money that recklessly. You might as well take my last cent right now. He threw the penny at her feet, stormed off out of the yard. She picked up the penny, embedded it into the wet cement, where it still remains today. It's a 1934-D copper penny, last pocket. It was in Ernest Hemingway. Now, he left her for Martha Gellhorn, and Pauline stayed here until 1951 uh, with the boys by herself. But she'd still would entertain her Hollywood friends and stars and celebrities and writers and poets. And she'd call all the girls around to poolside at cocktail hour and say, you know, ladies, of all four Hemingway wives, I am the only one that can truly say, I took him for his last cent, and there it is. And it's still there, embedded at the pool.
0: In addition to being appreciated for his concise and direct writing style, Hemingway was known for his fondness for drinking to excess. His favorite bar, Sloppy Joe's, has the writer's face as their logo. The large urinal from the original Sloppy Joe's bar is in the yard at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum, and of course, there's a story behind it.
1: Yeah, and Hemingway, you know, regardless of his indulgence, is, he was a very disciplined writer. He'd write till about noon every day, and then he had something else strictly on his adren- agenda, either to go fishing or down to Sloppy Joe's, depending on the weather. Now, Sloppy Joe Russell was one of his very best friends, and the original Sloppy Joes is what we know today as Captain Tony's saloon. Well, the landlord, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, tried to raise Joe Russell's rent a dollar a week. A lot of money back then, and it is a matter of um, Joe Russell just didn't want to pay it. So Joe Russell decided to move his bar across the street to the Sloppy Joes that we know today, on the corner of Duval and Green Street. But the way he did it, he had a a very swift exit out of the old bar. He offered all of his customers a drink if they would help move the bar across the street. So if you picked up a table, a chair, a case of booze, um, and take it over to the bar across the street, they'd give you a drink for that. And so, after you're finished with that drink, you go back to the old bar and pick up another couple of chairs or a table and a case of booze and bring it over and get another drink. Well, that went on for just a very minimum amount of hours, and the bar was pretty much stripped down. It was lock, stock, and barrel. It was now across the street slinging drinks. But the customers were having to pay for the drinks. So they went back to the old bar to find out what else they could bring over. And there was nothing except for the fixtures in the bathrooms. So they started to rip the toilets and the sinks and the urinals off the walls. They brought them over, and Sloppy Joe said, wait, 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 don't bring those in. We already have restroom facilities here. Just drop them on the sidewalk. They did. He honored the drink deal and gave them their drinks. But we're done moving. Well, Hemingway came walking up that afternoon, and as he approached the new Sloppy Joes, he saw this urinal sitting out on the sidewalk at the entrance. Joe came out, told him about his new bar and how well he had pulled off the move, and Ernest said, you know, Joe, that urinal sitting there. I think I've put enough money down that drain that I should own it. And Sloppy Joe said, Ernest, what do you want with a urinal? Surely you've got two bathrooms at your own home. He said, yeah, but you know what? I've got 50 cats. I've got about 12 water bowls all over the place. Every time I turn a corner, I kick one over. He goes, if I had that heavyweight, large water fixture, I could fill that with water for my cats. And I could just have one bowl for all 50. And so Sloppy Joe said, tell you what, come on in, have a drink, and I'll help you take it home. Hemingway went in early that afternoon for that one drink, and they came out late that night. The two of them made their way back to this home, uh, looking for the lighthouse's guidance as to where the house was located, and they plopped the urinal in the backyard. Ernest filled it up with water, went upstairs, and went to bed. Miss Pauline woke up the next day, came out to her veranda to gaze at her $20,000 pool, saw the urinal sitting there next to her pool, woke up Ernest said, hey, get that filthy disgusting thing out of my backyard right now. He said, look, you move your pool, I'll move mine. Needless to say, the big one didn't go anywhere. Little one remains there today, and it is still today. The cat's water bowl with a Spanish olive jar on top, brought over, hand carried by sloppy Joe Russell and Ernest Hemingway. In
0: 1939, Hemingway moved from Key West to Cuba, leaving his second wife and children behind. He received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954 following the publication of his novel The Old Man and the Sea. The author committed suicide in 1961 at his home in Ketchum, Idaho. We spoke with Dave Gonzalez, events director at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum in Key West.
3: Living in Paris, in attics and garages. Where the coal merchants climb every stair The dance hall next door is filled with sailors and whores and the music floats up through the air for sans sand and oysters and Notre Dame's cloisters time with its Now we can say we were lucky most days and throw a rose into the sand Now I can say I was lucky most days and throw a rose.
2: This
0: is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, locate great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, and much more. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more that's MyFloridaHistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, when we think of the agriculture industry in Florida, we certainly think of citrus, but you have documents here related to another short-lived
2: but interesting agricultural endeavor. Yeah, that's right, Ben, and today we're talking about the cultivation of the tongue tree, and that's T-U-N-G, uh, which most people may not be familiar with, but uh, as you said, it had a very short-lived but uh, an interesting point in, in Florida's agricultural history. Now, the tongue tree is uh, native, actually, to China. In fact, it grows uh, in a very small area along the Yangtze River. The tree, actually, is a bit temperamental. Uh, so it would only grow in certain areas and in certain climates. and In fact, uh, scientists have now figured out that that's right along the 30-degree uh, latitude line um, uh, that, uh, in fact, runs right through the central part of Florida. And the tongue tree produces a hard nut that looks similar to a walnut. And when that walnut is processed through a mill, it produces a viscous oil. Uh, and that oil was used and has been used for thousands of years in China uh, for treating wood. Uh, it's similar to uh, what we would use today as a varnish. Uh, for sealing and treating types of wood but it was also used for other purposes uh, throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries Uh, and the majority of the exports of tongue oil were coming out of China Uh, so there was very little, uh, very few tongue trees rather that were growing in the United States in fact it wasn't until 1905 that a famous Floridian by the name of David Fairchild, a botanist uh, who lived down in South Florida brought over some of these tongue tree uh, seeds to begin uh, experimenting with cultivation here in the United States.
0: One individual in particular spearheaded the tongue oil industry in Florida, and you have his papers here.
2: So uh, Fairchild first brought over the seeds to the United States to begin uh, cultivation efforts, but it really wasn't until the 1920s uh, that people realized the commercial potential of the tongue oil uh, business here in the United States. And there's one individual in particular, a guy named uh, Harry W. Bennett. Uh, now, Harry Bennett made his money uh, actually in the biscuit industry in New York. He sold his interest in the company in the late 1920s, actually just before the uh, the crash in uh, 1929, and decided to travel the world. Well, while he was traveling around Asia, he ended up uh, spending a few months along the Yangtze River, and he studied the uh, cultivation and the uh, processing of the tongue oil that was being produced in China. Uh, and He learned quite a bit from the early techniques and the traditional techniques that were being employed in China. And it was Bennett who then came back to the United States and selected an area in north central Florida, just north of Gainesville, uh, where he decided it would be the perfect climate and the perfect type of soil for the production of this tongue oil. Uh, so Harry Bennett uh, dumped a, a huge portion of his, uh, of his fortune into these operations. And in 1931, he purchased uh, between 3 and 4000 acres of land uh, and in between 1931 and 33 he had a, a group of about 60 men who worked daily and they would plant between four and five thousand tongue trees uh just north of Gainesville. Uh and these rows of, of trees ultimately the, the rows comprised over five hundred miles of commercially viable uh trees, which amounted to approximately hundred and twenty thousand trees that he had on this large two thousand acre property. And in nineteen thirty three he established the China Tongue Oil Company uh, and worked very closely with the Gainesville Chamber of Commerce to help uh, market this operation. So he was not only uh, working with the uh, the folks at the Chamber of Commerce, he was also working with scientists at the University of Florida. Uh, so he was kind of uh, spearheading the scientific initiative to uh, engineer a tree that would be uh, hardy enough to, to handle some of the, the harsh winters that occur in, in North Central Florida, uh, but also get the most amount of oil out of his tree so he could compete with the market in uh, in China.
0: Well, this sounds like a pretty lucrative business. What
2: happened to the tung oil industry in Florida? Well, that's interesting. So like I said, uh, Bennett had set up his operation in in the early 1930s. By 1932, he and a few other uh, uh, plantation owners were exporting oil throughout the United States. But it was very difficult to keep up with the uh, cheap uh, labor costs that were coming out of China. So they were able to, China was still able to export much more. Unfortunately, though, the the Chinese were, were Uh, wrapped up in a civil war during this period and then of course the United States entered the Second World War and during that time period the US government seized all of these commercial operations and all of the tongue oil uh, that uh, Bennett and his uh, um, fellow businessmen were creating or were producing rather was being used for war effort so a lot of this uh, material was going to the US Navy for treating the decks of of ships in the Navy and other uh, and other purposes but um, after the war it was very very difficult for Bennett and many of his Uh, associates to recover that same industry. Because by then, scientists were developing new synthetic material that would replace the tung oil, uh, which was much, much easier to produce and could be produced much cheaper. Uh, So the uh, China Tung Oil Company was operated by Bennett's wife for a number of years. He passed away in 1953. His wife continued the operation through the 1950s until it got to a point where it was no longer economically viable. Uh, She then converted that 2,000-acre her property into a cattle ranch. Uh, So she repurposed the land. They tore out all of the trees. Uh, But again, after about 1960, most of the uh, tongue trees that were growing in that part of of north central Florida had either died or had gone fallow and, and were essentially abandoned. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. With 663 miles of beaches in Florida, surfing has been a popular pastime in the Sunshine State for many years. Robert Casanello from RobertCasanello.com has more.
4: Well, I think it's completely consistent with the lifestyle choices that people seek um, as a reason to move to Florida. It's this outdoor lifestyle, it's, um, it's a healthy sort of water-oriented activity that um, everybody can participate in. I think that the technology is reasonably um, simple. You have a surfboard and you ride a wave with a surfboard. That's pretty fundamental activity.
5: That was Paul Aho. He's the dean at the Pottock School of Art and Design in Kentucky and the author of Surfing Florida. Here, he tells me about the origins of surfing in Florida.
4: Uh, surfing in Florida actually has its origins as early as 1909 and um, oddly or interestingly enough in Daytona Beach, so there are records, newspaper accounts of uh, surfers in Florida who built their own surfboards and began surfing in the waters off of Daytona very, very early. But surfing really enjoyed its boom years in conjunction with a number of things that occurred, in, um, like a confluence of events that took place in the early 1960s. The late 1950s sort of set the stage for it. The war was over. America was enjoying this sort of uh, buoyancy. Uh, the demographics were changing in Florida. People were coming to Florida. The, uh, the sort of a youth movement was actually taking place in Florida, contrary to the sort of general uh, perception of Florida as a state of retirees. And, of course, the Annette Funicello movies and uh, the Gidget movie and, and the advent of foam and fiberglass surfboards sort of set the stage for a boom where surfing increased dramatically um, in the 1960s and um, sort of uh, all across the country, of course, but in Florida in particular.
5: I asked Paul Aho to tell me about the first surfers in Florida.
4: Well, there was a small cadre of surfers in a number of key locations. Daytona Beach, again, before World War II, had uh, what's considered to be as many as 50 regulars surfing in its waters. Uh, The war certainly changed that, that. By the end of the war, there were really only, or during the war, there were really only two surfers um, known to be surfing in Daytona Beach, and certainly far fewer anywhere else in the state. Um, Golden Reed and Dick Avery were two from Daytona Beach that surfed throughout the war and were on hand uh, as the sport sort of rebirthed after the war and um, soldiers returning and, and the new technology and such. But um, primarily, the, the first surfers, the first real surfers in Florida are credited to be the Whitman brothers, Dudley and Bill Whitman and Stanley Whitman out of Miami. And, of course, they made road trips. They were um, students at University of Florida, and they would venture to Daytona Beach and um, became friends with surfers who were picking up the sport there as well. But um, generally, they're considered the first true surfers, the first people that actually lived a surfer's lifestyle and were dedicated to the sport in the fashion that we think of surfers being dedicated today. The the earlier surfers, these um, people that were pioneering this, sort of picked this up out of um, articles in Harper's, um, Collier's magazine, and, uh, you know, there were plans available, how to build your own hollow board uh, that were available as early as 1937 out of Popular Mechanics magazine. So people who had a sort of a sideways interest in the activity were surfing early on, but there were not any really dedicated surfers until like 1932 with the Whitman boys out of Miami and then uh, Golden Reed and others in Daytona Beach.
5: In the 1960s, what changed in Florida and brought on the popularity of surfing to many was not only the films and television shows, but the changes to the design of the surfboard itself
4: certainly represents a major cultural shift in the sport as well because surfboards became readily available they were light enough for people to transport to carry to the beach and to use much more readily Um, so surfboards went from being 100 pounds a piece to like the golden reed surfboard is about 100 pounds i suppose down to you know 18 or 20 pounds and then lighter and lighter yet as the technology got better and And then, of course, um, the shortboard revolution of the late 1960s and early 1970s revolutionized the sport again. So the shortboards went from this sort of longboard, this nine-foot length, down to six feet or seven feet in the matter of you know really in the matter of several months, the sport was completely revolutionized and um, these surfboards became obsolete and um, were weren't used for many many years. We've seen the rebirth of longboarding again with the modern longboard that took place in the 1980s or late 1980s and certainly is going as strong as ever. There's, the water is certainly shared today between short borders and long borders in pretty even numbers.
5: That was Paul Aho. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, "The History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida
0: Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily post today in Florida history. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers is provided by Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brotmarkle.